Welcome to Where I Come From, a podcast devoted to Nebraska sports figures and the life experiences that shaped them. I'm your host, Dirk Chatlin, and this week's guest is Pro Bowl offensive lineman and former Husker Richie Incognito. We talked about learning to fight back against bullies, his tumultuous career at Nebraska, his reputation as the dirtiest player in the NFL, the Jonathan Martin scandal, and his post-football plans. But when I, when I really got here and the competition kicked up, my fight or flight was like way off the charts. It was like fight everybody. You factor in losing every day in the grind of an NFL season, the, 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 prod, the byproduct of that was just a haze, just mass hysteria. You know what I would do to piss people off is I would finish them. I would finish them, and there's this this unwritten bro code in the NFL. Of, you know, hey, this is a good player. Don't don't throw him on the ground. Don't treat him bad. And that was everything that I had been taught to do. You know, just impose your will on people, break them. The further I try and run away from it, the faster it's just going to catch me. So I just have to focus on what I can control, and that's me. This is where I come from. So when my, my grandfather left the farm in Italy, he was 15 years old, and my great-grandfather told him, if you go to America, you can't take the family name, which was DeJesa at the time. What was it? DeJesa. 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 So my grandfather was young and tough and said, fine, I'll go to America. I don't need your name. So he got on a boat. He sailed here to New York to Ellis Island. And when he went through uh, Ellis Island, they asked him what his name was, and he says, I have no name. Give me a name. I have no name. He, he's, he's barely, I'm, I'm sure he didn't speak very much English. Um, and so they gave him incognito. And he came through Ellis Island and he was too stubborn to change it back. For really? Mm-hmm. Did you ever, uh, what, do you, what did you think of carrying that name your whole life? It's always, it's always been like an oxymoron, you know what I mean? He's incognito, I'm incognito, but I'm the largest person in the room, talking the most and the, with the most tattoos. So not very incognito. You've got a really interesting, uh, not just a career story, but also a life story. Uh, and, and one thing that I try to do in the podcast is kind of go back, you know, all the way to the start with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're a Jersey kid, right? New Jersey native, born in Jersey, raised there until I was 12 years old. Your, uh, your dad was a Vietnam vet, right? Yep, my dad was a Vietnam vet, two tours in Nam. Uh, we moved to Arizona in, two, or in 1995. Um, basically, you know, my parents were sick of paying high taxes. The town we were living in was, was getting more and more run down. And my mom took a trip out to Arizona to visit some family and everything was brand new. Schools were brand new. Shopping malls were brand new. Everything was new. And it offered my dad an opportunity to, uh, to change careers and start building swimming pools. What did you think of that? I mean, cause you're what, 10 years old or something like that? Yeah, I was 12 at the time. It was, uh, it was different. It was a big adjustment, you know, going from coast to coast and not knowing everybody. We had a little bit of family out there, but it was an adjustment and getting to learn new friends, kind of at a sensitive time in life, sixth, seventh, eighth grade in through high school. Um, but I played a lot of sports. I played a ton of sports and met, met a ton of friends through sports. And so that kind of got me over the hump out there. As the as the story goes, you, you were actually you were actually bullied as a kid, right? Um, I was bullied a little bit when I first got to high school. Yeah, um, had some kids, some older kids on the team that didn't like that I was up playing with the varsity, and they were picking on me. And uh, happened one day, me and my dad were walking. Uh, we had we had just finished practice, and me and my dad were walking, and they started throwing stuff at me. They didn't realize my dad wasn't a friend. They that was my dad, so they were throwing stuff at me. My dad grabbed them, brought them in with the head coach, and was like, you know, what's going on? 
So uh, yeah, it was it was it was I think it was jealousy at the time because I was a sophomore playing on varsity and I was taking their spots and and uh, yeah, it's it's actually funny the 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 quote unquote bully was bullied in high school. Disclaimer. Richie Incognito is easily the most controversial podcast guest we've had. This probably isn't the proper venue to fact-check everything he says. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation whether you like him or not. You had a situation where you basically confronted somebody, right? Like you confronted a kid who was beating on you. Yep. Uh, Tell me about that. Yeah, just a kid. Just one of the kids in the neighborhood. He was a rough kid and never really got along with him. And, you know, we'd go play ball at the park and – he would, you know, he'd rough you up, and it was one of those times like, oh, I was, I was kind of a gentle guy. I, didn't, I want nothing to do with him. And then one time I got a hold of him. I beat the shit out of him in the schoolyard, and, uh, and that was the last of that. But you went home crying too. Oh, yeah, for sure. Why? Oh, yeah. Because I was in you know, I, didn't, I, I had never been a big fighter. I never, you know, I was 10, 12 years old. I was... I was a happy-go-lucky kid, and uh, to, you, you and you were a big kid too. Like I mean, you were. I was bigger. I, I really didn't hit my growth spurt till high school, but I was I was definitely a lot bigger kid. So yeah. People picked on you. I mean, in those two instances, yeah, you know, I definitely got picked on for sure. What did that do to you as a kid? I guess. Uh, I really don't think it had that much of an impact. I really don't. It was. It they were kind of isolated incidents. It wasn't something where I can look back on it and say it affected me. Um, you know, it was, it was a learning process. It was a learning process, you know, of, um, you know, hey, I'm not going to take any crap from anybody. That's where the, you know, the, the, I think the edge, you know, started and maybe came from there. But, you know, I, I figured out, you know, if you punch the bully in the mouth, they won't mess with you anymore. So you said one time that, uh, you said, you said that football kind of saved you when you got to Arizona. Yeah. Why? I started making friends. You know, I was, I was, I was there in the sixth grade. I moved during the middle of the school year. And I wasn't fitting in. I was from New Jersey. I had different different tastes and different likes from the kids out there. And uh, I just I was having a hard time making friends. And then I started playing football in middle school and in high school. And I started to make friends. You know, I started to make some some good lifelong friends um, that I have to this day. You know, bonded with them. And, and football was kind of the the common bridge. Your uh, your dad was real. I mean, you, you were kind of a, an only child for quite a while, right? Mm, yep. your, your younger sibling is like ten years younger. Eleven. Eleven years yep. younger. Uh, what? Your dad was like he was pretty hands on, right? Oh, I mean, very much so. Yeah, my dad was very hands on. My dad was intense. Um, you know, my dad was he was always on me to be my best, and my dad was always on me to 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 play well. And uh, I owe my dad a lot because you know, I, I if I could take his criticism, I could take anybody's and. Uh, it made me very coachable, and it, it's an asset that has gotten me this far in my career. I can take it. I can take that criticism and, and don't take it personal because I know that the coach relationship, the father son relationship, they just want me to be the best. Did he play football? My dad played very little high school football, but my dad, he was at every single one of my high school practices, and he watched like a hawk. And anything the coach told me, my dad was repeating at home that night over dinner. He went to every practice. Every single practice I've ever played in in high school. He'd get done working early. He'd come. He'd sit up in the stands. There was a crew of about three or four fathers that would do that. A couple fathers worked from home, but they were up in the stands every single practice. Did you clash with your dad? Uh, not until I got older. You know, there was no talking back to my dad. Really? Yeah, no no, no talking back, no disrespect. Uh, I didn't really clash with him until I got older, um, you know, playing at Nebraska, you know, coming home, hey, I'm the big tough guy, that kind of stuff. But, uh, no, I just listened to what he said and, you know, try to get better um you said you said that nebraska was basically the only school you looked at yeah because you went to 
in uh, after the '99 season, mm-hmm. uh, Nebraska played Tennessee in Phoenix. Yep. Why'd you go to the game? So we had some family friends in the area that were huge Nebraska fans, and they had gotten in my ear early, you know, sending over the media guides and oh, talking about Nebraska football. And we would go over to uh, to their house. It was uh, the Swansons, and uh, their whole garage was just decked out in Husker stuff. I mean, really? they, these people were were through and through Nebraska fans. So uh, I had started getting recruited. I had started getting recruited after my sophomore year. And uh, New Mexico State, Tony Samuel sent me my first letter, and um, I've been competing in weightlifting competitions, and uh, I just started getting on recruiters' radars sophomore year going into my junior year. And we went to that game, and we saw the rich Nebraska tradition. And at that time, they were still chugging along, winning national titles. Um, It was the best of the best. You know, if you wanted to be a good offensive lineman, you came and you worked with Mill Tenniper, and you developed your skills. And... Plain and simple, I wanted to be the best. I wanted to play for the best, and I fell in love with Nebraska. I'd never been here, knew nothing about it. I just knew about I knew about the program, and I knew about the pipeline, and uh, I wanted to be a part of it. You uh, you t- you tell a story about uh, your first tattoo and about how your dad drove you to to get that tattoo. Yeah. Uh, what what's what happened? How how did that come about? So the whole tattoo story came about my dad. Um, my dad was asking me, you know, what type of 40 I ran because back then there was no count, comp, scouting combines. There were no high school five-star camps and stuff like that. It was, um, you know, we basically were filling out uh, the information that the universities used to send you, a, like a fact sheet, and you had to fill it out. And we were filling one out, and he was like, what do you run your 40 in? And I was like, I don't know. I've, I've never run a 40. So he took me up to the school. We ran. And I ran, I think, like a 5.6 or a 5.7, really disgusting. And he's like, well, we got to work on this. What are we going to do? And uh, my best friend, Kyle McQuaid, had just gotten a tattoo. And he got a big tribal tattoo. He talked his mother into it. He was 16. And we were at summer school, and I was like, well, I really want a tattoo. He said, listen, you get, you run under a 5.240, I'll get you a tattoo. Because no way in hell did he think over that summer that I was going to get to a 5.2. <laughs> so... I, uh, I, bought, I bought books. I uh, bought a plyometric book and a weightlifting book. Um, I had a great strength and conditioning coach at my high school. I got with him. I said, hey, i got to get faster. And he's like, well, we got to get you a little bit stronger. we got to do some plyometrics. And, um, you know, when, when after they do offensive line drills, you got to come down, then you got to run with uh, the running backs and the wide receivers and stuff. This is going into, like, junior year? This is going into my junior year, yeah. Um, and I uh, – I started doing overspeed training. I started doing plyometrics. I ran stadium steps on my own. So I basically was working out with the team, and then I'd stay after and work out with the, the skill guys. And then on my days off, I would go up and I'd run stadium steps and do extra plyometrics and I'd stretching. And I'd say it took me about, I don't know, four or six weeks of just like really intense, maybe a little bit long, maybe two months. I really can't remember. And I trained every day for it. And um, I remember we had set a date to do it. And the day was coming up, and my dad was late coming home from work. And I was like, well, I'm done with my workout. I'm ready to run. Let's go. So we had a, a pastor on our team, and I was like, all right, you stand at the 40-yard mark, and you time me because my dad will believe you. He won't believe me, but he'll believe you. And uh, so I ran it. I blazed it, and it was like 519. And we were all celebrating and being happy about it. And my dad got there, and he's like, all right, I'm a man of my word. I'll, I'll take you to get a tattoo. And then he had to work, so my mom had to take me to the tattoo shop that weekend. So she takes me down to the crawling squid and uh, the crawling squid, the crawling squid in Phoenix, Arizona, and and uh, I told them I was going to get a barbed wire tattoo, 
And then she left, and I was like, where's the biggest one on the wall? And I picked out the big tribal, and I got it. Wow. Um, when was the first time somebody told you or expressed to you that, hey, you pushed it a little bit too far on the football field? That would have been um, when I got here my my. I guess it would have been my redshirt freshman year. Not in high school? We were breeding that in high school. That's what we wanted because I was this big kid who was kind of timid at first, and we wanted to get that guy to come out. And it started coming out. It started coming out a little bit on the football field. Um, but when I when I really got here and the competition kicked up, my fight or flight was like way off the charts. It was like fight everybody. And I got into fall camp. And this is 2001. This is 2001, and I was running with the practice squad, and we're playing against the black shirts, and they're kicking the crap out of me. And I wasn't going to stand for it, so I just started fighting everybody. And about a couple weeks in, Tenniper's like, you're going to kill yourself, or they're going to kill you, or something bad's going to happen. So Milt said, uh, uh, Matt, I think it was Matt Schnook, Matt Shook, he got, he got dinged up. And they needed a backup center to John Garrison, and I was playing center at that point. And they brought me up, and I practiced with the second team. Garrison would take the first team snaps. I would go in and give him a break, and then um, Gary was the starter. He was a great center at that point. And um, it was about the Rice game, I think. Maybe the Rice game. My, my dad was in town. He was at practice. And um, Shook had gotten really hurt. Because if anything happened to Garrison, Shook would have won the game. And he got really hurt, and he had the discussion with my dad, like, hey, we may have to pull his red shirt. And uh, I remember going home, my dad asked me if I was ready, and I said, I think I'm ready, we'll see. And it, so it was kind of questionable if, if um, a John Garrison was going to start against OU that next week. And, uh, man, what a great game that was. That was the Eric Crouch throwback pass to Mike Stunt. Mike Stunt's to Eric Crouch, and that was nuts. And uh, But, yeah, so – Thank goodness, Garrison. John Garrison was was healthy, so I didn't have to play that year, and then came back and earned a starting spot the next year. Which you had already earned a reputation and run your share of stadium steps, I think, right? I was up and down those stadium steps more than anybody I know. I mean, I was, oh, God, I ran out every fight, every everything, uh, every fight up those stadium steps, late for lifting up those stadium steps. I mean, I made it a habit. I got good at them. <laughs> 2002 comes, uh, and – Man, that Penn State game, I, st I still remember that night. I mean, that was such a such a slap in the face to Nebraska fans. Yeah. Uh, you didn't handle it very well. No, I did not. I didn't handle it very well at all. Me and uh, I forget what DN they had. He was getting All-American hype, and I was hyped up to play him. And uh, it got real dirty and real chippy. And uh, we, we, got, we went down on the – they kept warning us the whole game. And we went down on the ground, and we were tussling, and then both of us, boom, ejected. We got warned so many times. Uh, but, you know, just hearing from, from Paul and the Nebraska fans about how poorly they were treated, I mean, that was just a bad night in, uh, in Penn State. And, uh, and, yeah, so. What was the feedback from that, Richie? I mean, it was, it was, a, it was not a normal occurrence for, for a player to get ejected from right. a game. How, how did you – what did you hear from, from your coaches, from, from teammates? Yeah, Milt, and Milt was very upset. Uh, Coach Solich was very upset. Definitely, they called me in and they were like, "What's going on? You know, you're you're pushing it too far. You're over the line. You got to bring it back. Uh, you have to pay the consequences." I was suspended for the first half of the next game, Iowa State, and um, yeah, they were very disappointed. You know, they they had high expectations. I mean, Milt had obviously um, stuck his neck out on the line to get me in as a starter because I was the youngest in school history to ever start in a game, 
and I think a lot of people had questions about why I was starting. Um, I was because you know back then, guys came into the program, you redshirted, you 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 paid your your dues for a couple of years, and then you stepped in maybe as a junior or as a senior. And when I had gotten here, there was a long list of guys to take over, and um, I started spring ball in 2002 uh, at left tackle and I was in a right-handed stance because I couldn't play in a left-handed stance so Milt was like listen if you're comfortable playing in a right-handed stance just just play in the right-handed stance and so it was kind of up and down and up and down but then when training camp got there and I got some reps in I really started playing well and I beat everybody out and um, yeah I remember Milt telling me you know we don't know if you're going to work out but we're going to make you play and I was like what was your relationship like with Milt? I mean, you know, he's at the very end of his career at that point. Mm-hmm. I, I think he really, I think he loved your motor. Uh, he was always a little worried you were going to go over the line. Mm-hmm. How did you guys handle that as coach and player? I love Milt. Milt was a big instrumental part in me coming up here. Milt, Ron Brown, Dan Young. I spent a lot of time with them on the recruiting path. And, um, you know, Milt was always on me to, to, to bring it back. And he said, you know, you're a hell of a ball player. You don't have to do all that crazy stuff. Lesser ball players have to do it. And I didn't get it. I just didn't get it. I was I was too in the moment. You know, somebody would shove me, and I would I'd lose my mind. And I was trying to to trying to set a, a tone and set a you know be the tough guy. And um, it was tough because I went I went over. I was I was hit with a ton of penalties. It was something that plagued my career all the way through St. Louis. And um, it was something that you know constantly needed to be addressed because yeah, you're a good player, but you cost the team penalties, and you shouldn't be on the field. So something I had to work on very hard. The, uh, the next next season comes around, and that's where this manager clinic thing comes in. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened? So I've heard all sorts of stories. The best part about this is I failed a drug test at the University of Nebraska, and their standard protocol was to go down to the manager clinic and get evaluated. So I had told a friend who had another frat brother friend that worked at the Omaha World Herald, his name was Nick Rubeck. Nick Rubeck, in order to gain favor with Liz Merrill, told Liz Merrill that I was down at the manager clinic. So the story comes out. I'm still down there. And it's like a week-long evaluation. You go down, you talk with everybody. Hey, do you have a drug problem? This, that, and the other. Clearly. What was your, how did you fail a drug test? Just failed a drug test. What kind of drugs, though? Just failed a drug test for marijuana. Okay. Yeah, just failed a drug test. It was standard practice back then. So Liz Merrill goes to the university and says... Hey, why is he at the manager clinic? The university freaks out and says, oh, he's down there for anger management. The story runs. Um, we can't fact check it. We can't say we can't say anything. We don't want anybody finding out the real truth. We don't want anybody finding out anything. And uh, we kind of just let it go. But the, the story had been written that she was down in Topeka and had run into me and had followed me and clearly not the case. How did you handle that? I was upset, you know. I was upset. I was upset at the at obviously the journalists. I was upset at uh, the university. I felt like they kind of you know hung me out to dry a little bit. Um, but you know, we, we we handled it. We got through it, and then you know went on to, to have another good season. That season unfolds, and you know you get to the end of that thing, and Milt was already gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barney Cotton's the the offensive line coach. Yep. But you know, as that season comes to a close, they they fire Frank. Yep. Uh, how did you handle that? I was upset about that. I was upset about um, I was upset about the season prior them having Frank retool the whole staff. Um, 
I had committed to the University of Nebraska for uh, longevity, coaching stability, tradition, and when they fight, when 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 they whatever happened, when they forced Frank to fire everybody and change staffs, I felt like you know all the guys that had recruited me, now they're gone. Like, what am I doing? I'm I'm so far away from home. This isn't What's... Nebraska anymore. Yeah, right. Exactly. This is this is not what I signed up for. So Barney and his staff came in. Um, Ron Brown was still around, and um, me and Barney, we didn't get along at first. I was like, you're not my coach. Milt's my coach. And me and Barney butted heads, and then through time and through work, we, me and Barney started getting along really well. And then come to the end of the season, we had you know retooled the staff, and we had an okay year. At one point in the year, we were up to number four in the nation. We go down to Missouri, and we lose a game down there because it's soaked out. We're, we're dropping punts left and right. And um, if we would have won that game, we would have been in the mix for another national title. But we didn't, and we go to the Alamo Bowl, and or we, we go to Colorado. We beat Colorado in Colorado. Frank's fired. And I was pissed. I was upset. Now, now the, the 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 head coach, the guy that I firmly believed in, you know, the successor to Tom Osborne, the guy who was handpicked by by Coach Osborne, is now gone. So I was I was upset. And then the, you know the new regime came in, and their track record speaks for itself. So didn't, you just didn't get along with them. Didn't get along with them. You know, the the big thing was. I, uh, they had come in and I had gotten into the fight with, at the frat party, at a frat party. At a frat party. Um, I got into a fight on a camp, on an off campus party. I was in the bathroom and I was holding the door with my foot my girlfriend was using the restroom and some guy comes barging in. So he comes barging in the door. He's like peeking through the door. We get in a big fight, all this stuff. The cops come, they write me a ticket. We go through the whole court process. And uh, Coach Callahan calls me and he says, okay, we're going to suspend you for the first game. And I was like, okay, that's fine. You know, I'm, I messed up. Um, but it left a bitter, bitter taste in my mouth. I was upset that Frank left. I really wasn't clashing well with Coach Callahan. Um, I wasn't really buying what he was selling. And uh, to, to start the relationship off on a wrong foot like that, it would just it made the whole thing tumultuous. And then later that summer. Late, later that summer, uh, we're in the, the training room. And uh, Grant Mulkey and I were close friends, and he had he, they had written an article about him about how he had said something like you know he's gonna cry when he runs on that field to play that that Saturday, and I was giving I was razzing him, giving him crap about oh you're gonna go out there and play and uh, you're gonna go out there and cry and this and he goes well at least I'll be on the field and I lost it so we started a shoving match not even no no punches were even thrown started a shoving match in the training room. Uh, go upstairs, see the offensive line coach, let him know what happened, and he goes, okay, Bill wants to see you. So I go in with Bill, I talk with Bill, and he's like, well, you're now you're indefinitely suspended. I was like, okay. So That's how you responded, Richie? <laughs> on, on, honestly, I, I, I didn't lose it on Coach Callahan. I was like, okay, whatever. It was more of uh, along the lines of like, I was so sick of him at that time. Um, I honestly just walked out. There was no big blow-up. I heard the stories that there was this big argument yeah. and there was a big blow-up. You apparently flipped over a desk is what somebody said. Not at all. That's, 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 <laughs> that's the lore of Richie Incognito. I, I've, heard, I've heard some good stories about myself that aren't true. So I walked out of there, and I was indefinitely suspended. So I sat in the stands as Southern Miss walked in on our field and embarrassed us. And I was like, man, this, this doesn't feel right. So uh, a week went by in school, another week went by in school, and at this point we were like, hey, what's, what's going on? You know, this is my junior year. I was having aspirations of moving on to the NFL soon, you know, evaluate after that season. And uh, my dad had flown up, and we went in to meet with Coach Callahan, 
and we had a meet with Co- we had a meeting with Coach Callahan, and we were like, when is when is he going to be off suspension? What's going on? This indefinite suspension. Coach Callahan was very elusive, dragging his feet, couldn't give us a firm answer. And as we walked out, um, his assistant, I forget his name, he was an older guy, um, white hair, he grabbed me and my dad and he said he's planning on suspending him for the entire season. He won't play here, he won't play this season. He wants him to pay his price and then come back and play his senior year. So we went home, we started evaluating. Okay, well, if I'm going to have to sit out this year anyway, what do the transfer options look like? Because I want to go get a fresh start. I don't like Callahan. I don't like his message. Um, so we started looking, and a couple schools came up. Georgia, UCLA, Oregon had come up and because um, they were on the, the quarter system. School, NCAA. So in about a three-day period, we decided it would be best for me to go to the University of Oregon. It would be best for me to uh, sit out my year, get to know the staff of the University of Oregon, get to know the players, and then play my senior year, have a good year, and then leave for the NFL draft. What happened at Oregon? A lot of rules were set out that uh, it came down from Coach Bellotti, the athletic director, the president of the university, and at at one point it was it was it was too hard to live up to, to the things that they were laying down, and it, it, it turned into a negotiation. Um, There's a couple different aspects at play there, and. Um, I had been admitted to the school, but I wasn't admitted a scholarship. So I could have stayed at school, but my family had to pay, and that wasn't going to happen. We couldn't afford to send me to the University of Oregon. So um, then I had another decision. This was like three weeks later. Do I turn pro, or do I go to a school like Portland State and play out the year? And uh, I decided right then and there, I said, I'm going to turn pro. Did your, did your dad make things I mean, easier or harder during all this time? Because you know he was spending a lot of time on message boards and defending mm. you sometimes privately, sometimes publicly. Oh yeah. Uh, it's not always good to have a parent that influential or that you know hands-on. I mm. guess. How did you feel about that? You know, he was. I know he was very active on those message boards. Even when I got to the Rams, he was active on the message boards, and I told him he had to cool out on that stuff. That stuff never never bothered me. You know, my dad is is one of my biggest confidants, and you know. He's uh, he's been very influential in my life, um, so that stuff never affected me. You know, it was it was it was kind of a crazy time here because we had made the decision to leave Nebraska, which I thought I would never do. Then we're going to Oregon. Then we get to Oregon, and it's really it's not a, it wasn't a good situation on both ends because Bilotti had made some promises, and then the university had heard about it, and then they stepped in, and then he was getting pressure from a couple different directions, and I was getting pressured, and. Um, it wasn't a good fit. You know, that that it, it really wasn't a good fit on both ends. But you know, my dad and my mom they, they helped me through the whole thing and, and helped me get back home and, and get my stuff together and get ready for the draft. So you basically didn't play football from the end of '03 all the way through draft day 2005. Correct. Last game I played was Michigan State in the Allen Bowl, Bowl, which was it was a prison riot. That was a that was a fun game. <laughs> Wait a second, what? That was a fun game. That was a that was a fun game down in uh, in in the Alamo Bowl. We uh, we went down there and they had a mixer for us the night before the game or uh, several nights before the game. Michigan State and, and Nebraska. And Michigan State had a, a defensive end who was uh, you know all conference all American type guy, and he walked he walked into the um, 
the the banquet hall where we were at and they had the room divided down the middle both teams and our fans on each side and he was walking up and down and he was talking trash and we didn't didn't sit well with us something had happened and one of our players wound up on their side getting food and a shoving match ensued and then it all hell broke loose they were throwing chairs we were throwing chairs we were trying to get at them everybody's trying to get us out so that was Bo's first game as a head coach, and he had us primed up to play, and we were ready to go. So we went down there, and we just manhandled them. We beat the crap out of them. And, um, that was my last game. It was one of my most memorable Husker games. And uh, from that point, never played, you know, didn't play through the spring, was suspended through the summer, went to Oregon. That didn't work out for the next season. Furthermore, went to the draft, um, and then didn't even play my rookie season because I was injured. I hurt my, my, my knee at the combine, so I didn't play my rookie year either. Did you feel like – what, what did you feel like your relationship was, was like with Nebraska? I mean, you know, you, you basically had a falling out with the new staff. You know, you had all some of this uh, suspension stuff and things like that. Did, did you feel like you could come back? Did you feel blackballed? Did you, did you want to come back? Well, I think, I think my, uh, my relationship soured with with Bill Callahan and his staff, and not the University of Nebraska. There's so many great people there that that helped me get to where I'm at today. So, um, you know, I was I was upset at Bill and his staff for what happened, not the university. And I felt like in in time uh, I could come back, and I still had great relationships with people. And when Bill had finally left and Bo came back, that was the first time I had come back to the university and uh, spent time with the guys and came back for a spring game and, you know, was kind of reintroduced to Nebraska football. This is an off-topic question, but where did your personality come from? <laughs> My personality? No, I mean, no, I, mean I don't – where did your charisma come from? Where did your um, – is that is that genetic? Is it something that you developed, you know, as a kid? Is it something that came later in life? Like where – you're you're jovial. You're mm-hmm. you know you're expressive. Where, where does that come from? I think it came from my parents. A combination of the two. You know, my mom. She's the um, she's the active one. She's the go getter. She's out there. She's the work ethic. And my dad. He's old school. He's tough. He's he's a very hard worker. And um, but yeah, you know the 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 charisma and stuff. It's I guess been brewing and it's been coming out. You know, ever since I've you know been starting to stack some good years together and. And be comfortable with who I am. What would your life be like without football? I mean, what do you think you would have done? Uh, I have no idea what I would have done. I would have I would have went back home to Arizona and probably started working construction or really? doing something like yeah. I mean, I, I we had, we had, we didn't have enough money to, to send me to school, and I don't know. I clearly don't know what I would have done. Maybe finished college and, and got a job, uh, but uh, it'd be a lot different than it is right now. Did you? Um, you know, the locker room is. Feel free to dig in. Uh, the, the locker room has always you can tell that you just you enjoy that environment mm-hmm. uh, when did that start that started you know what I mean like you're that's your element yeah right? like I was I was a little awkward in high school you know we had a couple issues with the guys and stuff like that but towards the end of high school junior year high school I really made some really good relationships with the guys we would go run the mountain on Saturdays, and we'd hang out and start having good relationships. And then I got here to Nebraska, and it was a little tough because I was trying to fight everybody, trying to fight all the black shirts. And first, second year, and then when uh, I'd say when Barney 
took over, you know, it was important that I get along with everybody and I'm not just the outcast member. So we, we became a tighter knit group then. And then I really enjoyed my time in the locker room, you know, playing in places like St. Louis and Miami and in Buffalo, just enjoying the guys around me and, and being one of the guys. You got along with guys pretty well, right? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, even guys who are quite a bit different than you. I think that's that's always been my trademark. I get along with everybody, which surprises people, right? Well, there's a lot that surprises a lot about people because they're they're they have the issue. They're they they're hearing the story of me flipping desks with Bill Callahan, which isn't the case, and uh, definitely uh, a lot of misinformation out there about me. But I think yeah, the one of the one of, one of my best traits is I get along with everybody in the locker room. You get drafted by St. Louis, third round. Uh-huh. Is that about what you thought? I had no idea what I thought. I had no, I had honestly had no idea where I was going to get drafted. Um, I knew I, I knew I would get drafted. I knew it wasn't going to be a free agent situation. I thought I may sneak up into the second round, um, but the second round came and gone, and uh, got drafted by St. Louis. And, and yeah, compare and contrast the transition process to Nebraska with the transition process to the NFL. Yeah. Uh, well, the transition process to the NFL was a little bit easier because, you know, the transition process for me going from Arizona to Nebraska is pretty drastic. It's pretty huge. You know, being that far away from my family, we're a tight-knit group. We do a lot of things together. Um, that was difficult on me. And then um, going to St. Louis, um, it was tough because I was injured my first year. Uh, you know, you, when, you, when you're injured, you're not, you don't really feel like you're part of the team. You know, the team is going to meetings and practicing, and I'm over here laying in the training room getting my knee worked on and lifting weights and then going home in the middle of the day. Um, so it was, it was weird. It was a weird dynamic. And then um, my second year, I go back in 06, and um, kind of similar thing at Nebraska, you know. They had groomed some guys to be starters for them. They had drafted some guys. And spring ball came around, and I kind of shot up to the starter. And I remember going home to get ready for the season and was talking with my dad and was talking with my strength coach back home. And I was like, I got a good shot at starting. I'm, I'm starting right now, but I think I legit can beat these guys out. And we came back from camp. I had another strong camp. I played really well. And the first game of the year, I was named the starting left guard. And uh, this is the year we had the 4,000-yard passer, 1,000-yard rusher, 2,000-yard receivers. And first game, I started at left guard. Then our center, Andy McComb, got hurt. Uh, the backup center went in. He didn't have a strong showing. And they said, uh, oh, Incognito, you played center before. I said, yeah, my redshirt freshman year at Nebraska, I played center. I'm a, I'm a guard tackle type. So I went in on Wednesday before we played the 49ers, and they said, okay, well, you're going to be a starting center. And I was like, I've never, I've never played a game at center in my entire life. <laughs> so I went on. I, w- I started, I think, like the next 12 or 13 at center. And then they had a, we had brought in a, a, another center. And our, our guard play wasn't great, so then they shifted me to right guard. I finished the rest of the year at right guard. And then I came back, and I was a starter at right guard for the next several years. Pretty unusual to be able to bounce around that much, especially as a young guy, right? I mean, yeah, you really. You see that sometimes with older guys, but mm-hmm. not, not easy to do at 25. Yeah, not easy to do. Uh, one thing I have on my side is I'm incredibly athletic, so I can move around really well. I have good power, um, so I can really translate to any position. And um, it was it was a grind mentally, physically. It was it was tough because I'd never played center before. But mentally, knowing the plays and telling other guys what to do was it's very very difficult for a couple 
games at the beginning there, we would have to come up and the left tackle would have to make the points for me. He'd have to point out the mic and the will. And, really? Yeah, he'd have to call pass protections because it was literally so foreign to me. And um, we, we, we made our way that way. You, uh, This is kind of the, the stage of your career where you're getting a bunch of penalties and stuff like that. Yes. Uh, what, what, what was going on? I, it'd be easy for me to say I was frustrated with the losing because we had just we had we had went through the ringer in St. Louis. We had uh, I think we were like six and forty-two in a three-year span. I was frustrated with the losing. Uh, I was frustrated with myself where I was at in my career. Um, probably doing a lot of things I shouldn't have been doing, and it was really it was really messing me up mentally and physically and emotionally. I was taking a lot of penalties and I was upset about my situation, and uh, it was really just kind of you know. Uh, uh, a ball of negativity. You've, I mean, you, you've described that. I think you described that uh, that phase of your career as a haze. Yeah, because uh, you were you were smoking pot. Mm-hmm. You were like drinking pretty heavily too, right? Do I was doing all the things I shouldn't have been doing. You know, I was I was I wasn't holding up my end of the bargain, and uh, that really just kind of threw me into a tizzy mentally. And then you factor in losing every day in the grind of an NFL season. The 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 prod the byproduct of that was just. A haze, just mass hysteria. How did your teammates? How did you? How did you deal with the conflict with your teammates and coaches with all the penalty stuff? You know, it was give and take. You know, they they kind of went through it. You know, they they approached me with kid gloves. They they approached me the the hard edge approach. Um, it was it had it it had become such a a talking point that it almost furthered the problem and uh, like a self fulfilling prophecy it, it, it really had become that at that point it really had become that and uh we went through 2008 we went through a new coaching change steve spagnola was there and he came in and he was great he was very positive very motivating very very different from the guy we had before and we had all bought in we we were ready to go we're excited for the season we've been talking about um you know how we're going to change the culture and start winning. Yeah, he's coming in from the Giants Super Bowl team. Exactly. Yeah. And we open up the season, we start the losing again, and I—I I mean, I—I I literally just lost it. You know, I had been—I had I'd been talking to reporters about how I'd matured, thank you, and changed and, and grown up. And then the first game of the year, I come out, I get two penalties in Seattle in the in the in the opener of the season, and it was like, oh man, it was all downhill from there. Boom. Um, what does that mean? It was, uh, what does that mean? How did it get worse? It, that's where the self-fulfilling prophecy had kind of come in because I had spent so much time focusing on not doing this. I'm never going to do it again, okay, and not actually putting in the work to do it that it just came right back out. It just came right. You know, I was, I was talking about doing it. Like I talked with the kids today, I was talking about doing it, but I wasn't feeling it in here. So the penalties came back, me being a, 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 a a knucklehead and doing things I shouldn't have been doing off the field, the partying, stuff like that had kind of come back at full force. And it just, it really kind of just devolved. The whole situation devolved. I wasn't holding up my end of the bargain. I wind up getting released at the the middle of the season, the, the towards the end of the season. And uh, typical Richie Incognito fashion, shuffled off to a new team. I'm in Buffalo and I'm up there for the last three weeks of the year. And then I get home to Phoenix and it was like, it was like silence. You know, no one really had anything to say. It was just like, what are you doing? So it was an interesting part. I think I think that's when really the most growth had come in my life in 2009, 2010. Um, 
I had spent I had spent some time I had finally given in I had spent some times with some counselors and some therapists and some psychiatrists and I really a lot had, of that stuff right? a, a lot of that stuff yeah and I had been doing that I had been doing that since Nebraska through St. Louis but I, I think at this point I had really committed myself to it really committed to figuring out what I want in life really figuring committed to what I want out of my career and uh, I actually landed in a great situation with Bill Parcells and Tony Sperano. Um, old school, East Coast guys, much like my father, who weren't going to take any crap um, and who were on me. And that's Miami. in Miami. And that's when that's when things really started coming together for me. All the off-field stuff had quieted down. I'd got with some good guys there, Jake Long, um, and he become you know my friend and confidant. And um, that's when that's when things you know started calming down off the field, and things started getting better on the field. Um, you were, I think, at that point, you were you were annually voted as one of the dirtiest players in the NFL. Yep. How did you How did you deal with that reputation? <laughs> it was actually pretty funny. I think the first sporting news poll was like a poll of twenty five players or maybe fifty players. It was like I think we could poll more of the league, and I can get up to number one, but. Um, no, it was uh, it was it, it was funny, you know. It was th- that was all the baggage from Nebraska and St. Louis, and that was really all the stuff that I had to leave behind um, to really. Well, I had to leave it behind, and I had to, to recognize that that is very much who I am. Is that, that is very much my the perception of me, and now how am I going to go about changing that? And that's where the the daily process started in Miami, day by day. And I had linked up with our good friend Anthony Fasano, and I had some really good people in my life. And some good people to hang with. And that's where I started doing things the right way all the time. On the field, off the field, in the weight room, in the lunchroom. Um, and that's when things really, really took shape for me. Who did you get into it with in the NFL? Oh, everybody. Me and Dockett used to go at it all the time. Me and Dockett used to work out together. Darnell Dockett, big stud defensive lineman from Florida State. We used to work out together. And... Uh, we got into it one day and Rams Cardinals and we would go at it. I mean, we would, we would really, I mean, it was like all out war. Me and him, uh, me and Richard Seymour, we didn't see eye to eye on some things. He got ejected from a game when I was in Miami, punching me in the face. He was out of there. (laughs) Um, who else? I mean, there's a laundry list of guys. Uh, I'm trying to think Seymour was definitely prevalent. Uh, Warren Sapp, me and Warren Sapp don't like one another very much. Um, he poked me in the eye one game. Um, let's see. What did you do to piss people off, like in games? You know what I would do to piss people off is I would finish them. I would finish them, and there's this this unwritten bro code in the NFL of you know, hey, this is a good player. Don't don't throw him on the ground. Don't treat him bad. And that was everything that I had been taught to do. You know, just impose your will on people, break them mentally, physically, grind them. And in the fourth quarter, when they get tired, you get stronger. And, and you break them. And they didn't like that. These, these are guys who are all Americans, national championship winners, who have been treated great, you know, a lot of respect on the field. And I was a young, unproven guy who was uh, hard-nosed, and I, I really wouldn't take any crap from anybody. Did you enjoy fighting? I did, very much so. Like, did you look forward to it? I didn't. I don't say I look forward to it, but uh, I definitely, I definitely enjoyed it. I mean, like I said before, my fight or flight switch. It was quick. There was, there was no, there were no words. There was nothing. It was okay. We're gonna fight, or, or I'm gonna walk away. But, 
most of the time it was 99.9% of the time it was fight. What did your counselors and psychiatrists and people, you know, the mental health people around you, what did they say? Because like, I'm, I'm sure you were trying to eliminate that part of your personality. Right. What, what, what were they telling you? Well, the, the stuff that really started taking hold for me was, you know, you're out there with personal battles. You're trying to take on everybody. And you're, you're wasting energy. You're taking energy away from your cause, which what's your, you know, we had, a, we, had a, we had to peel back all the layers of the onion. You know, what do you want? And I was like, I want to be a great player. I just want to be the best. Okay, now that we have that baseline set, how do we get there? And it boiled down to these personal battles, talking trash, trying to mess these guys up. But what am I doing? I'm hurting my team and I'm hurting myself ultimately. So a lot of work around that. Uh, a lot of work um, when I got to Miami. Sperano and Parcells were on me like, you get one penalty, we'll, we will cut you. Really? Yeah. It was, And maybe joking, but probably not. Um. And so they they were on me, and they they kind of had that that um, they had their thumb on me. So I was really cognizant of the fact that if I get a penalty, so my my thing was in 2010, um, finish the play, don't talk it back to the huddle. No matter what happens, just get back to the huddle. And it took some time, you know. There's some John and some going back and forth and protecting my guys and stuff like that. But I just started getting back to the huddle, and um, now it's evolved to. Um, it's 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 kind of a weird deal. Like some of the, some of the guys in Buffalo are freaked out about how calm I am on game days now because I found a way to 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 bring the intensity, but the intensity it's like it, it's almost like a zen like intensity where I'm not talking, I'm I'm just focused and I'm so focused and so calm on game day that I'm just focused on what I'm doing and I just keep getting better and better as a player. You started taking uh, you started taking antidepressants, mm-hmm. right? When did you do that, and, and what effect did that have? I had I had I had been doing it in, in St. Louis and Miami, you know, just trying to, to figure out the right mix for me, you know, what was going on mentally and emotionally, um, and I I was willing at that point to really try anything to kind of get over the hump. What happened? Uh, balance, balance in my life had happened. Uh, balance off the field, balance with the partying, the um, the the doing dumb stuff. Uh, balance in my 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 likes and my my. My dislikes changed, and I really like being a good football player. I like getting up and, and grinding and being the best. So I had to take out the party, had to add in sleep and nutrition, and I started adding all these little pieces in. And, um, you know, it, it kind of culminated in 2012 when I made my first Pro Bowl. Did you fight depression? Did I fight depression? No, I think I, depression is it's a symptom of, you know, what's going on around you. So it was uh, it was there. It was an underlying issue. But at that point, we were really just trying to to figure out what the main issue was, you know, because there was so much going on. Um, so you kind of came into your own as a football player in Miami. Yes. Um, and then in 2013, kind of when you're at the height of your abilities, 29 years old. Yep. Uh, everything blows up with Jonathan Martin. Mm-hmm. How did it start? What was the first you heard? Um. It, you know everything there was a, it was a very unfortunate incident it was blown way out of proportion it was something where some things had happened some things were said um, and that's it you know it really took on a life of its own what, it's, do you, what do you mean some things were happened some things were said you know it's it's one of the things where I'm not willing to talk about right now because I don't want it to distract from what I have going on in my playing career. So I've, I've touched on it very briefly. And to get into great detail about it right now would just detract from what I'm trying to do. Um, 
but I will say this, the truth will come out one day and, um, I know the truth is on my side and, uh, it's, um, it's one of those things where it's, I, I'd love to, to, to really dive into that topic and, and get it all into it. But I think what's best for right now for my career is to not create headlines on that front and just to keep doing what I'm doing. What do you regret about that? The regret, my regret about that is that, uh, that that situation couldn't have been handled between two friends. You became like a national name, mm-hmm. uh, sort of overnight. Which I imagine, even with your even with your history of, of being in headlines and you know being ranked number one in the dirty po- dirty player poll and all that stuff, I imagine that was really hard to deal with. How, how did you deal with those you know those first few days and weeks of, of not just appearing on Sports Center but also you know, 60 minutes and the Today Show and everything else. Yeah, it was incredibly difficult, especially because I had just went through the kind of knockdown rebuild process coming out of St. Louis. Things were really rolling in Miami. I was playing well. I was surrounded by good people. I was making good decisions. I had attained my first goal of making the Pro Bowl. And uh, to be, to, to kind of get caught up in that whole storm of everything, it was incredibly difficult. Uh, but I went back to, to relying on good people around me, my family, my friends, um, to get me through. And, you know, there were times where I thought, okay, I'm never going to play again because the story was just so hot. It was just so out there. So uh, I went back to the drawing board. I went back to, to grinding. I went back to training. I went back to, to all the things that had been working for me. Sat out 2014 and got a great opportunity to go play with the Buffalo Bills. The, the part of this the story that I, that I think is sort of most interesting is you go back home to Arizona. Uh, it was the, either the end of 2013 or the start of 2014, early in the year 2014. And you, you basically just like wall yourself off from, from family, from friends, from media, from electronics basically. Uh, Describe your state of mind. I mean, I'm trying to picture what that must have been like for you, knowing that sort of everybody in the world's talking about Richie Incognito, mm-hmm. and I'm sitting here in this in this house in Arizona, and I can't do anything about it. Right. It was incredibly frustrating um, because the the story was so believable because of all the baggage, because of all the the, the anger management and the flipping over Bill Callahan's desk and the penalties and all this stuff that was kind of misinformation, misunderstood. Then it came out racist and bullying. It was like, oh, it's easy. We believe it. And the most frustrating part was I couldn't do anything to defend myself. I couldn't say anything, couldn't do anything. I was told not to speak to the media, not do anything. Um, And so I ran the whole gamut of emotions. You know, you go through denial, you go through regret, you go through accepting it, you go through getting better. You know, it's, it's like a roller coaster. And um, what, were was, you do- what were you doing, Richie? I, mean, I, I was working out every single day. I was working out every single day. I was at Exos. I had a good trainer in my life. And um, I just got back in the gym. So you, I mean, you were, you, you still had contact with people. Yeah. You just were, but you were trying to sort of hide out, right? Like just wait it out. Yeah. Well, there was nothing I could do. I mean, I had paparazzi out in front of my house in Miami. Uh, literally van, news crews, TMZ. Every time I would leave the house, TMZ was following me. Um, they were camped out at my dad's new house that I just bought him. They were camped out at his old house that I grew up in. They were camped out at my new house I had just bought in Scottsdale. So everywhere I went, I was followed. I mean, I would go to grab a sandwich, and people were trying to get the scoop, you know, Inside Edition and Access Hollywood or whoever. And um, I was told not to say anything, so I kept my mouth shut. And 
it was uh, it was difficult. You you weren't sure you were going to play again. I was not sure I was going to play again. I was definitely it definitely crossed my mind. I thought that this was the final straw. This was it. Uh, so I had, I had been suspended in the middle of the season. I had started training just in case I got released. I got picked up. I'd be ready to go. That didn't happen. Um, Twenty fourteen off season started training April May um, every day. Really, just kind of got back to basics, doing everything I'm doing now: nutrition, Pilates, physical therapy, uh, mental therapy. You know, a lot of help, counselors, stuff like that. And I knew I didn't know if I would get another chance, but I knew when I got another chance that I would be ready to go. And that's what I did for a whole year. I grinded, went on one visit to Tampa. You know, they things didn't work out there. They pulled the trade, got another player in. Went to Denver at the end of the season, and uh, things didn't work out there. They they wound up not signing me. And you were you were up there for a few days, just like interviewing, basically, right? I was up there for a few days interviewing with the Broncos. Yeah, I went in and uh, just kind of spending time with them. And it wasn't it wasn't a right fit, I don't think, for anybody because they're getting ready to make a playoff run. It's the end of the season, and you're going to interject me into a locker room, and I'm not going to be ready to play for a couple weeks. And everybody in that locker room is going to have to. Answer, answer questions about me. So I, I understood it. I, un, I understood it. You know, I, I got it, what, what it was all about. So, But that was a real low point. That wasn't that wasn't a low point. The low point was right after the, the, the whole fiasco and then the investigation came out, which was such bullshit. And the just, Wells report. The, the Wells report. And he just, it just proved to be BS again when he interviewed Brady and all that. And I'm glad that all blow, blew up in his face because it kind of shed a little light on my case and how but one-sided it was. the text messages weren't – they weren't real? They weren't true? They weren't well, the text, the text messages were real, but they were, they were in a friendly back-and-forth manner. There was no – there was no harassment through text messages. You can read all 1,100 of them. Um, there was there was the text messages show a pattern of two friends that are going through an off season and a season who are spending a lot of time together as friends, and that really don't support the whole harassment bullying mantra that got thrown out there. There's a world. There's a culture that you know is okay in football in a locker room and obviously it's a whole different world outside of the locker room it's a pretty i mean you're not the only one who's had to try to juggle these things or walk this line in life you know i mean there's football players whether it's uh you know domestic violence whether it's drug use you know uh it, there's all sorts of examples of guys who who have to try to thread this needle between being who they are in the locker room and sort of, you know, the culture there mm-hmm. and the culture outside of it. How, what have you learned about that? Like, how do you exist in both worlds? It's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult to exist in both worlds because in one world you're a gladiator and you're an alpha male and you're the biggest, baddest thing on the planet. And then practice ends, you leave the locker room, you're just a normal human being. And um, for me, it was, it was, hard to find that balance it was hard to find out okay Richie on the football field Richie at home and I see I see it happen with a lot of guys you hit the nail on the head you have to navigate the waters of domestic violence drug use there's a lot of things that go on in a football locker room and we are a tight-knit family and we deal with all these things on a daily basis but um, you know it's it's difficult at the college level but then you get to the professional level and you have so much money involved and you know guys getting paid a lot of money that the problems just get expounded so it's incredibly difficult for young men and um, it's uh, 
it's a, it's a learning process, and that's why you see so many guys weeded out so fast because you either you either make it or you don't, sink or swim. Why do you think you've made it so long? I I was blessed. I'm a I'm a very good football player, and that has afforded me a lot of opportunities. And um, I'm a good person, and that's opened a lot of doors for me as well. And uh, combination of those two things, and a combination of people that actually know me, and enough people behind the scenes to to check me out and, and have a conversation with me, that's opened many doors in my life. The, the 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 word that always comes up is anger. You know, whether it's on field or sometimes off field too. Mm-hmm. Did did you ever feel like that was that was an issue? I've never felt that anger was an issue. I felt that it obviously came with the tag from the manager clinic that I was down there for anger management. And um, it was something, I was more of a, a rambunctious guy trying to set a t- at the tone on the field. Did, yeah, sometimes it turned into anger, me taking a shot at a guy, yeah. But it was more of me me trying to set a tone and me trying to be physical in nature and me trying to to just be the most physical football player in the world and did it cross the line sometimes yeah but was it rooted in hate and anger absolutely not uh describe the day that you got the call from buffalo i was actually uh i was at a dinner during super bowl in phoenix and i had went to dinner with my agent and a good friend of mine who i'd met the first time i played in buffalo eric wood so february 16 i think right yeah so this was this was super bowl week yeah and my agent said, uh, Buffalo is interested. Buffalo is very interested. Tony Sperano had went from the Miami Dolphins to the New York Jets. And he had gotten in. He was there for a year or two. And he had gotten in Rex's ear about what type of guy I was. And my offensive line coach had went there. So when Rex got hired, he the first thing he said was, we need incognito. And they reached out to my agent. And Rex was on board. The GM was on board. I had to go meet with uh, Kim and Terry Pagula. Uh, the owners of the Buffalo Bills down in Florida. And so I, I got the news at dinner. Me That's and, a little bit intimidating, right? Oh, it's very intimidating. Me and Wood at dinner, we were excited. We were, yes, another opportunity. This could work out. Then the week went by, and they said, okay, we have to go meet with the owners first. And my agent said, I've never had this happen. <laughs> you know, this is a first. And uh, he said, you know, just go down there and be yourself. Just go down there, talk to them, tell them what happened. Did you have to wear a tie? No, it was very chill. It was, okay. was low-key, so... I land in Florida and I go to the hotel and um, Rex and the GM Doug Whaley are at the hotel and they're like, come on, come down to the, come down to the lobby, meet us for a beer. I've been out of football for a year and a half at this point. I'm so like uh, worried about my image and you know, someone will snap a picture. So it's, it's very, it's very, very weird. They're like, come have a beer. And I sat there and I drank water for like an hour meeting with them. I was like, Oh, is this a test? I don't know. So uh, the next day we, we, we load up in the car and the GM grabs me and goes, uh, Terry Pagula read the entire Wells report last night, and he's having second thoughts about this meeting. So what we need you to do is please just go in there and be yourself. Don't don't try and sell anything. Just just be yourself. And at that point, that's all I had planned to do. Lay it all out on the table. You know, go. You want to go through it a point by point? Let's do it. So I went. I had a two hour meeting with them. What did he ask you? They asked, you know, Terry, Terry was asking, you know, what, what did you learn? How did you learn from that? How will you impact our locker room? Um, what do you plan to do with this platform that you've been given? Because you've been given quite a platform. Everybody knows your, your name and your face now for bad. What are you going to do with it? We talked about turning into a positive and, you know, Rex chimed in on what kind of guy I'll be in the locker room because, you know, we're going to get a cancer. And he said, you know, Tony Sperano stuck his neck out for this guy. He knows exactly who this guy is. He's had him in his locker room. 
we know who he is. And uh, Kim Pagula was great. She just wanted to get to know about my family and, and, you know, what I had, you know, she asked me if I had a girlfriend and things like that. So she was more of the, the personality side, you know, the personal side. And uh, so it went great. They, they left the room for about 10 minutes. And they came back and they said, we'd love for you to be a part of the Buffalo Bills. Really? And yeah, I mean, it was like a weight had been lifted off my shoulder. I called my mom. My mom was crying. My dad was crying. I was crying. It was a very emotional moment. And um, I left there. I got on a private jet with Rex and, and Doug Whaley and flew back to Buffalo to sign the contract and, and take a physical. And I got off the plane in Buffalo and they came up with a big sack of Bills gear. And they're like, here, you know, here you go. You know, welcome back. And, um, you know, from that moment on, I'm forever indebted to, to the people in that room. You know, Kim, Terry Pagula, Rex Ryan, Doug Whaley, um, for giving me an opportunity, for seeing me for who I am. And so every day now, it, it's it's all I think about is repaying them for giving me another opportunity. You were really guarded going in there, though, right? I mean, you, you didn't know exactly what to expect from the locker room, right. from the community. Yeah. Uh, was it was it hard for Richie to keep his mouth shut, so to speak? It was it was difficult to to try and fit into that locker room. Uh, well, it was difficult to try to try and fit back in because first day of off season program, you got to go talk to the media, and like I just talked about before, I don't want to talk about the bullying incident because my time will come to tell my side of the story on that one, and um, I want to have all my bullets when it comes. So. When does that come, by the way? I don't know when that comes. I don't know if that comes. In a year or two, if it comes in five years, it comes in ten years. Um, but when I do tell that story, I want to have all my bullets. I want to have I want to have all everything because I think it'll change a lot of people's minds. And so when I had to go back, I had to navigate the waters and not say anything controversial, not say anything that'll bring all that stuff back up because everybody wanted to know what happened, right? Nobody knows what happened. Everybody wanted to know what happened. Everybody has an idea. Maybe they think what happened, but nobody knows what happened. So it was so it was tough, but what was really great about it was I had a great friend in the locker room, Eric Wood, and he kind of sheltered me and and and, and helped me kind of assimilate into that locker room because I didn't know if guys weren't going to like me for what I had said and what I had done. Um, so I just kind of hung tight with Eric, worked hard. Um, it was a new coaching staff, so I kind of had a fresh start with everybody, and you know just just kind of laid the foundation and laid the bricks one by one and really just built a, a strong. A strong base, you know, made some good friends on the team, and um, before you know it, you know, I was comfortable being in that setting, you know. But it was it was awkward, you know, the first time, you know, you're sitting around, you're joking with the guys, and you rip a joke off, and you're like, how is that going to be taken? I don't know, but you know, it's uh, it was a good feeling to be open, to be accepted with open arms. When did you start work on the locker room again, like you were, you know, sort of famous for doing? It it just came natural, you know. It just came natural, you know, guys you know, came up and, and had questions about stuff, uh, you know, what what had went down. And then, you know, you slowly start making friends with one guy and then that leads to conversations with other guys. And next thing you know, you know, you're all friends again. So, so guys would ask you, huh? They would ask you about it? Yeah, guys would ask me all sorts of questions about it. They were curious too because they were getting information through Wood at the time and they and Wood knew the truth. And it was, uh, it was a very, very interesting deal. Huh. Uh, I, I was cracking up reading one – one anecdote in one of the stories that's been written about you there's uh tyrod taylor jokes that there's an old richie and a new richie can you describe old richie and new richie <laughs> so it's funny because through the whole process of working out that off season in 2015 
Tyrod had come from the Baltimore Ravens, and he was a free agent. We were working out together in Arizona. And even that was an awkward transition, you know, being in the weight room with those guys from, from other teams that have no idea who I am, so I just kept my mouth shut and worked out. And then slowly it happens. You know, I have a big personality. You become friends with them. They get to know you. And I had went in early February and signed with the Bills, and then in March, Tyrod said, during one of the workouts, he said, I think they're going to sign me. I'm going up there for a visit. I said, let's go. This will be awesome. So it was really cool that me and Tyrod started our Buffalo lives together. And um, so he always jokes, like, I'll be ripping an equipment manager. Like, hey, can I get some towels? Are you doing your job? What are you doing? Are you taking the day off? And Tyrod, it always seems like Tyrod's right there, and he'd be like, new Richie, new Richie. So kind of as a joke. Google searches aren't very nice to you. Uh, <laughs> when's the last time you Googled your name? Oh, I do it all the time. Really? Oh, yeah. I do it all the time. I'm always checking, seeing what's going on. I do it more of as a news deal because you can toggle it and you can get it to just so where you get the news in the current articles. I think I was just ranked uh, the ninth most disliked player in the NFL by Sporting News. That's recent. Is that up or down from, from normal? It sounds like, it, sounds like <laughs> it might have dropped. Yeah, I may, I may have dropped. It may have to piss some more people off, but I take all that stuff in. With good measure, and you and Sue would usually rank one, two in that thing. No doubt. Uh, how was how was Miami with? Uh, or no, he came. Late. Yeah, he was yeah. he was after Sue. How how was? Uh, you know, it's it's kind of was, funny. It's <laughs> it, it's funny because Sue and I both have the same mentality when we play. You know, we're going to be the most physical presence on the field. We're going to dominate, and that comes from our days as being a Husker. You know, it was it was pounded into us. You know, we're the best. We're the most physical. We're the toughest. Um, we're we're not going to take any crap from anybody, and we're gonna we're gonna beat your butt, and um, you know so it's funny that they call him a dirty player and this that and the other. Listen, world Indomitian Sue's a world class NFL football player. Sometimes does he go over the line? Of course, but you'll take that when the guy's making all pro and all and Pro Bowls every year and bringing him in, he's making your defense better. So it's uh, it's funny that two Nebraska guys are right up there in the mix. It's it's pretty incredible to see a guy what three thirty mm-hmm. is that what you are sort of be as fundamentally confident as technically sound as you are yeah uh what is i I imagine is is that what sets you apart uh yeah there's a lot of obviously obviously the fire is part of it yeah the fire is a large part of it uh being blessed with size and athleticism a large part of it but i've always i've always taken well to coaching i think that's why I've, i've gotten so many opportunities i've had because i've never clashed with coaches you know offensive line coaches um, you know, obviously, I get myself in a pickle, and being the head coach, I have words that's been done. But as as far as an offensive line coach and offense coordinator, anything that's asked from of me to do, it's done exactly how they want it. Um, I'm a I'm a grinder. Every single day, I bring it. Um, you never have to question if I'm if I'm if I'm not into it, or if I'm hungover, or if he's this. No, you get the same guy every single day, and uh, I I really I really want to play the best football I've ever played. So. I take coaching and I play fundamentally sound. You know, I, I have a plan in place on every snap, and that's really what has set me apart these last two Pro Bowl years is just getting to the line of scrimmage, having a plan in place, knowing, okay, I'm going to step with this foot. If he does this, I'm going to do that. If he does this, I'm going to do that. Just having those contingency plans and, and really just – and then, then the fire and the athleticism and the speed really take over. Does it bother you? Uh, does the reputation – I mean, I don't know how long that's going to stick with you. That might, that might, oh, that be. might be permanent, yeah. How long does it does it bother you? It used to. It, it used to really bother me. It used to oh misunderstood and this and I want to talk out about the Omaha World Herald article. It's not anger. I, I failed a drug test. I made a mistake. It's not. It's not that I have an anger issue. 
and with growth and with maturity, uh, I just realized it's just a it's it's something that the fur the, the the further I try and run away from it, the faster it's just going to catch me. So I just have to focus on what I can control, and that's me, and that is controlling my message and controlling what I do day to day. And um, if my perception changes, that's not up to me. But what I can do is I can change the way I act, and then. Hopefully one day it'll change people's perception, but I'm I'm a realist. I, I believe it'll never change. Um, That's hard, Richie. I mean, people re- reputation means a lot to people, you know. It does, it does. But at a certain point, you have to realize that there's just so much stuff out there. Like you know, like with the I heard you flipped over a desk in Bill Callahan's office. There's some stuff out there that they take a life of their own and you can't control. Um, what my reputation I hope to be is that I was a, a hardworking football player. Uh, that was a good person who was a huge heart and uh, who really cared about playing the game of football. And really what carried him through all of this is his love of the game of football. Who's the toughest guys you've been against in the NFL? There's a bunch of them. I always say the best three technique ever played against is Kevin Williams. He played for the Minnesota Vikings for a bunch of years. Uh, Very rare size, speed, athletic ability, um, super good pass rusher, very smart. Jared Allen's one of the best defensive ends I've ever played against. Uh, Dwight Freeney, when he was going, he's still playing, but he was when he was playing down in Indianapolis, he was good. Um, Richard Seymour was another special type guy. Uh, really long list. Darnell Dockett was a good ball player. Darnell Dockett, we had some battles, and Dockett was Dockett was a, a definitely a good ball player. Um, now you know the Gerald McCoys, the Fletcher Coxes. Big, talented defensive lineman. Aaron Donald, he's probably one of the best pass-rushing three techniques interior offensive lineman I've ever seen. Uh, there's a lot of them. There's some studs. J.J. Watt. J.J. Watt's a stud. He's a, he's a whole different animal. Um, what do you want to do after you're done? When I'm done, I actually hope to transition to a career in media. You know, go talk about football, talk about the game I love. You know, build relationships. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good at building relationships with, ple- with people. And I want to build on that and I've uh, been getting out there in the media a little bit, going on Fox shows and going on the networks and showing my face and, and getting out there. You want to do like a color, an- color analyst? Yeah, I think what? so. I think I'll start out doing color analyst, maybe do be a talking head on one of those debate shows, stuff like that. Your experience would create a pretty interesting platform there, I would think. I think it would at least open the door for me. I think from there on out, it would just be, uh, it would be you know, how well I am received on TV. Thanks for listening to Where I Come From. You can access our entire library of episodes at omaha.com slash podcasts or at your favorite podcast app. Thanks to Bird Creek for the music. If you have feedback on this episode or any others, please email me at dirk.chatelaine at owh.com. See you next week.